Let's pray. Thanks for grace. There's no other way. In your holy name, amen. Once in a while you read something or hear something and it causes you to drop everything you're doing and just stop right where you are at because you're overwhelmed. I mean, your brain understands what is said or written on one level, but it knows that there is a far deeper and far more important level. And it's literally grasping, trying to get its hands and its fingers around it. 60 years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote these words in his book, The Four Loves. He said, God, who needs nothing, loves into existence holy, superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe, already foreseen the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the mesial nerves. If I dare use the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites, causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. A few years ago, Nancy got me into watching the British baking show. Now, I only know how to heat things up in the microwave and cook macaroni and cheese. And so the entire cooking vocabulary is as strange to me as a theological vocabulary would be to them. So we're watching the show and they're doing this and several times the contestants said, I'm now going to reduce the sauce. And after I heard it for, I don't know, the sixth or seventh time, I turned to Nancy and spoke out loud my thoughts. Well, if they knew they didn't need that much in the first place, why did they put too much in? And that's when she explained to me what it means to reduce the sauce. And it has nothing to do with putting less in. To say that God is love, or to write John 3.16 on a piece of cardboard and hold it up for others to see, that is the act of ultimate spiritual simplicity. It's called bumper sticker theology. The gospel in a nutshell. The gospel supposedly reduced as far as you can reduce it. And yet the gospel in its wholeness, distinctiveness, and redemptive power defies reduction on any level. Google, based on my searches and various articles I click on, has very generously, and I'm sure profitably, created a personal newsfeed just for me. It has stories about cowboy stuff, and airplanes, and Jesus, and Hawaii. All things I'm actually interested in reading about. But then, then there's these whole sections on people I've never heard of. By the way, most of which are labeled sponsored content, meaning that Google gets paid to insert those things into my personal newsfeed. The article is written as though it would be inconceivable that I would not know who these people were. My life must be empty and hollow because I'm not following their every tweet, Instagram, and TikTok video where they explain the secrets of the universe and give their opinion on the Oprah interview with Harry and Meghan. I was thinking about famous people I do recognize. People like Bono, Cher, The Rock, and Madonna. They are so famous that they only have one name and nobody confuses them with anybody else. John 3.16, especially in the King James, it is just as rock star famous as any of those people. How many Bible verses are so famous that you've got it memorized? If I say Habakkuk 2.1, 
Proverbs 2.16, Obadiah 1.4, or Hezekiah 9.9. Can you quote them? By the way, just so you know, Hezekiah isn't actually a book in the Bible, but it sounds like it should be. Even people who aren't believers have John 3.16 memorized. The rest of those, they'd have to look them up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But just because we have something memorized, or we recognize someone who only has one name, what do we really know about him? See, when I think of Bono, it's those sunglasses he wears. Cher, all those outlandish costumes. Madonna, well, her need to always be in the spotlight. And The Rock, well, he's just The Rock. But I really don't know much else about them. And what I do know may not be true. You see, it may just be someone's imagination or what their publicity team wants me to think. When you hear John 3.16, what comes to mind? Tim Tebow, the guy with the rainbow uh, wig at all of the sports events. A Sunday school teacher whose name right now you can't remember, but that was kind of her thing, John 3.16. You know, one of the problems we have is assuming everyone sees something the same way we do. Whether it's the color of blue, the sound of jazz, the smell of spring, or what John 3.16 means. We speak the words and we don't bother to explain because we don't think we need to. But like the man who needs no introduction, and yet we always introduce him anyway, and often, by the way, in great detail, perhaps we need to explain the Bible verse that needs no explaining. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I was reading a book by a former pastor who had decided that God was no longer worth worshiping. His explanation of John 3.16, a verse that I thought everyone understood the same way I did, was a little scary. You see, he said, God created us to be perfect. But a woman ate something she shouldn't have, and so God got really angry. And he wasn't just angry at her, but everyone, including everybody that hadn't even been born yet. And so he locked the gates of heaven and wouldn't let anybody in. Well, but after a while, God was still angry. But deep down, he didn't really want to punish everybody. Besides that, he was kind of lonely in heaven all by himself. But he had to find another way to fix things because he couldn't break the very rules that he was the one who made. And that's when he decided he could fix everything by killing his own son. So, God punished his son so that he didn't have to punish us. As he watched his son die, his anger went away. And now we're supposed to feel so guilty that we'll stop doing all the bad things we've been doing, clean up our act and say pretty please so that he can let us into heaven. You know, that explanation really scared me. And if that's what that guy really believed, I can see why he walked away from God in the ministry. I prayed for him for quite a while, hoping that he would take another look at John 3.16. And instead of seeing an angry, vengeful, emotional God who is into extortion and guilt, I wanted him to see a creating, loving Father who chose to love above everything else. You and I cannot interpret anything outside of our own experiences, our own beliefs, our own thought processes. We tend to see God as our mother or our third grade teacher, or the angry pastor in the pulpit pounding on things, or the absentee father who's always making promises but never keeping them. Love is whatever our experience of love has been in our life. A family member who never had time for us. A boy or girl in junior high who never looked at us once, let alone twice. 
a spouse who abandoned us, a prodigal child who left us, a person who just used us, even though they said they loved us. And as for all the other words in this verse, like believeth and perish and everlasting, we all have our own definitions shaped by our love or our lack thereof. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, St. Paul wrote, For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Every time somebody asks me to interpret the Bible, I get very uneasy. See, I know what they mean, but to interpret the Word of God is to say that I have the ability to know exactly what God is saying. And if you accept that responsibility and do so willingly and knowingly, it is a holy and sacred responsibility because the Bible also says that if you intentionally lie, your life is forfeit. See, the Word of God has a single purpose. It's to lead us into the presence of God so that He can love us back into heaven. And if we use God's Word in any other way, we are denying the very will of God. And we cannot just tell ourselves that it doesn't matter, because it does. It is so much easier to put words in God's mouth, because if we fully understand what John 3.16 is saying, instead of guilt, it would be love that leads us back into His presence and back home. But love isn't the fairy tale, Hallmark movie, Valentine Mush, we like to have a good cry over before getting back to our real life where love is a four-letter word that has no real meaning because nobody can love us like we actually want to be loved. If you wanted to tell the world how much you loved them and that you were willing to do whatever it took so that they could not only feel like they were loved but actually know that they were loved, how would you write it? What words would you use? And how would you make sure that they understood the words that you were using? What would you say to the woman at the well who had so many husbands she probably didn't remember all their names? Or the tax collector who cheated people for a living? Or the religious zealot who was running 100 miles an hour but in the wrong direction? Or the sisters whose brother had just died? Or the Roman soldier who had lost count of the number of people that had died on his blade? or the man born blind and had to beg for a living, or the leper who was denied any human touch, or the upright, well-respected teacher who came to you in the middle of the night to talk to you about things that mattered, but he was afraid of what people would think if they saw you together. What would you say to you? With all the questions and doubts and pains and hurts and challenges in your life, how would you explain love to you? How do you explain love to someone who has only experienced loss and a heartache? How do you explain eternity to someone whose life is measured by minutes and days and years? How do you talk about sin and hell and punishment and consequences without creating such fear that people run away? How do you bring hope and promise to those who believe such things only exist in fairy tales? How do you convince someone that it's not what they do but who they are, that it's faith, not works, that God is interested in? God so loved this messed up, inwardly focused world of me and you that the only way to fix things was to give himself to us. He came in the most vulnerable and fragile way possible. He could have chosen to be anything he wanted because let's face it, he is God after all. But he chose to enter our world in life as a baby. Instead of claiming all sorts of royal privilege and power and special powers, after he stopped being a baby, he was a carpenter until he became a pastor. And by the way, he was not one of those world-famous, jet-setting, perfect-haired, manicured, sun-town pastors with crystal cathedrals and giant pulpits, but one that Isaiah 53 said, and I quote, 
had no stately form or majesty to attract us, no beauty that we should desire him. Unlike all the other pastors, though, he spoke with authority, and he spoke the truth. And it was so refreshing and novel that people were willing to listen, especially the least and the last and the lost and the forgotten. His message was the truth with capital T's, but it was the truth spoken in love, not our kind of love, limited by our feelings, our past, and whether or not we think the person is worth our love, but a love that is unconditional, except that God won't force it on you. God still loves soldiers and sailors and pilots and mothers and CEOs and McDonald's janitors and teachers and students and kids with braces and people with eating disorders and cancer survivors and all the other unique and unreproducible people in the world whose lives are also broken. And Jesus did not expect everyone or even anyone to hear him and suddenly become perfect just because they heard him. Martin Luther wrote, This life, therefore, is not righteous but becoming righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet, but we shall be. But we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. And so it is unavoidable that you and I will go along in our life having heard John 3.16 and all the other verses and not fully or completely understand what God is actually saying. But with each day, if we allow him deeper into our heart, he peels back the layers of unbelief and pain and emotions and hurt and slowly helps us understand what he really means by love. The key is not giving up, not giving in, not walking away because it's too hard or things aren't going our way or we just decided that it wasn't worth it. While John 3.16 gets to be famous and is plastered on bumper stickers and in and out cups and the former Forever 21 shopping bags and that rainbow-haired football guy and Tim Tebow's eyelids and someone like Stone Cold Steve Austin who tries to co-opt it into his own brand by making it Austin 3.16, it's actually John 3.17 that I would rather have you memorize. It says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. You see, when I hear that verse, John 3:17, there is nothing more for me to do other than fall on my knees in worship. If I ask, what have I ever done that was worth God leaving heaven and coming down here and living like me in this broken, upside-down planet and then dying for me? The only answer I've ever been able to come up with is absolutely nothing. I may have done some good things, but nothing that deserves God's love. And when I see the way this world treats God, I know we as a planet certainly don't deserve Him. I'm not done with this verse yet, but after all these years, I've come up with a few thoughts on why we still get such a beautiful, simple verse wrong. It's because we often put the emphasis in the wrong place. We put it on our belief, on us, on that whosoever believeth in Him. Yeah. That becomes the gold standard, the proof, the differentiation between the saved and the not saved, or the worthy and the not worthy. And such a view will eventually lead to a theology of life and love that God never intended. This verse is about God's extravagant, over-the-top love. And it might be more famous than all the other verses, but you really can't understand it unless all those other verses are singing back up. If you have any doubts about where the focus of the verse should be, 
Just look at Jesus on the cross. Listen to his final words. As you eat the wafer and sip the drop of wine, hear the words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. You can't reduce that, no matter how hard you try. But it can begin to grow and change you until it fully and completely fills you with the real love of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.